Well, I haven't said these words in a while, but I said them at the very beginning of our study in Genesis, and that is that Genesis is about God. Genesis is about God. Now, that was easy to keep in mind during the creation account because we would see God speak, let there be light, and there was light. And so we would see God in that way. But as we move into some of the more detailed narratives of people's lives, like Abraham and Sarah, we can shift our attention off God and onto the people where there's this interesting story going on. We need to instead add our attention to the people that is already focused on God. That's where, we, that's where we want to see things. We want to see God and what he's doing. He remains the important one in the story. And to do that, I have two things that will help us out. <clears throat> that right there is going to happen throughout the service just because it's allergy season for me. It's fall allergy season for me. Thank you for, thank you for bearing with me. There are two things that will help us. One, we need to see the, the little things in Genesis in light of the big picture. When we see a story going on here, we need to recognize where it fits in God's picture of redemptive history. That'll help us in our understanding of what's taking place. The second thing is that the most important thing in these stories or accounts, it's, it's less the action that's taking place and more the dialogue that we're given, especially when God speaks. It's really helpful to learn and have understanding of the situation when we understand the dialogue, what's being said, as opposed to some of the actions that are taking place that take us down little rabbit trails. So that being said, as we look at Genesis chapters 20 and 21 this morning, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Abraham and Sarah living out their faith inconsistently. We're going to see Hagar and Ishmael suffering. And we're going to meet a foreign king named Abimelech who schemes selfishly. We're going to see those things, but we're going to see a sovereign God who's above all that, and yet, at the same time, actively engaging in all of that, personally interacting with all of them in word and in deed. He's doing something that we all want our Heavenly Father to do for us. Protect us. Protect us. Think about it. We want His almighty security to protect us in our inconsistent sojourning on earth. We want His everlasting security to protect His promise to bring us home to the promised land. And we want the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of His righteousness that comes to Abraham's true children by faith in the true and better Isaac, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want him to protect that promise. So if you'd like to follow along in the sermon outline that's in the bulletin with you, uh, you have this sermon theme, inconsistent as we are in our sojourn of faith. By grace, God protects us and protects his promises to us through Jesus Christ, his promised son. I'll read uh, our text this morning. I'll read all of it, but I'll do it in the three sections that you see in your sermon outline, beginning with chapter 20. From there, that's Hebron, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned near Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. 
because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she has become my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we've come. Say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham moves his people from Hebron south to sojourn in Gerar. There he runs into the king of Gerar, Abimelech, and Abraham sins the same old sin by telling him the same old lie. Sarah is not my wife, she's my sister. It's a repeat of chapter 12 with Pharaoh in Egypt. And Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. Now, this is terrible. This is terrible. What is it that we know about Sarah? We know she's supposed to have Abraham's baby within the year. If ever she needed to be protected, it's now. But Abraham is more concerned with protecting himself than protecting his wife. And we learn a couple of new things here. Well, Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. They have the same father, Terah, but from different mothers back, back when they were born in Ur of the Chaldeans. But that's not the problem. Abimelech didn't take Sarah to be his sister. The problem is, Sarah is Abraham's wife, and now she's married to Abimelech. The sin is Abraham not protecting his wife. And apparently, 
This is a standing policy with these two, according to verse 13. Ever since they left their father's house, everywhere they went, in order to protect Abraham, Sarah would say, he's my brother. So it's Sarah who's protecting Abraham, rather than Abraham who's protecting Sarah. I mean, this is just an outworking of God's judgment in Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a serious lack of faith on Abraham's part, and the timing's horrible. It's plain to us now, isn't it, that Abraham's faith is inconsistent. And that's a kind way of putting it, isn't it? Abraham's faith, it's, it's obvious to us, is inconsistent. Or, or Abraham's application of his faith is spotty at best. And it's something we can relate to. It's something we can relate to, can't we? One day, Abraham is fighting armies to rescue Lot, and the next day, he gives his wife away to save his own skin. Isn't Abraham's God sovereign in both of those situations? And powerful for Abraham in both of those situations? Aren't we faithful children of God, sometimes courageous and sometimes cowardice? Hasn't God given us a spirit of power and not of timidity? You know, the, you know the boxer Mike Tyson is saying, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Everything changes once you get punched in the face. We walk out of church Sunday ready to fight the good fight, but only to get punched in the face one weekend afternoon and our eyes are watering and our nose is bleeding and we forget what to do next. Like that wasn't supposed to happen. And it just shows us two things. First, we need to learn how to fight better. We need to learn how to take a punch and stand on our feet. But second, we see that just like Abraham, our own righteousness is faulty and failing. But the righteousness that wins and protects is the righteousness of Christ that's credited to us by faith alone. That's the righteousness that saves. That's the righteousness that keeps you on your feet. Well, God comes to Abimelech in a dream God communicates directly to Abimelech's mind, and he says, you're a dead man, Abimelech. I mean, that's an attention getter. It got Abimelech's attention. Abimelech is a dead man if things go as Abimelech plans for them to go. Abimelech took Sarah as his wife and intends to have sex with her because that's what husbands and wives do. And Abimelech immediately appeals to God. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And now notice, that's, that's exactly what Abraham did back in chapter 18 regarding the, the righteous people that might be in Sodom, isn't it? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's what Abraham asked. Abimelech's asking the same thing. Now Abimelech, he's not righteous by faith, but he is innocent in his actions so far because of Abraham's lie. Moses tells us in verse 4 that Abimelech has not touched Sarah, and so he has not committed adultery, neither has she. He makes his case to God, and his actions are based in integrity of heart and innocence of action, and God says, I know, which God could say about anything, right? I know. Why hasn't Abimelech already consummated the marriage 
He just took a new wife. Why hasn't he consummated the marriage? God says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. And in that one statement, we see two really, really important things. One is that sin is against the Lord. Your lost friends don't get it. They don't get it. They know when they've done something wrong to hurt somebody, but they have no clue that they're sinning against the Lord. Sin is against the Lord. I kept you from sinning against me, God tells Abimelech. It's just as David says in Psalm 51. He prays against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Whether Abraham lied or not, if Abimelech followed through and had sex with Sarah, he would be guilty of sin against God, and God would be just in making him a dead man. The second thing in this, in this verse, I kept you from sinning against me. The second thing we see, the grounding for Jesus' teaching of his disciples to pray, just as we prayed, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Don't we? Because that is what God has done here for Abimelech. God is sovereign over evil. And we can pray, lead me not into temptation and deliver me from evil. What God has accomplished here is that he has protected Sarah. He has protected Sarah. God has protected his promise of an heir to Abraham and Sarah. And he has preserved Isaac from suspicion, hasn't he? Even Abimelech says, I did not touch her because God prevented him. Abimelech didn't take Sarah. Abimelech didn't take Sarah out on a date, spend a little time with her, let her get to know him, fall in love, and then get married. No, Abimelech took Sarah. God thwarted King Abimelech's plans. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he, he turns it wherever he will. That's what he's doing. Now, God gives Abimelech a choice. Return the wife of the man to the man, who is a prophet, or you're a dead man, a dead king, along with all of your kingdom. That's what's at stake. And Abimelech's choice seems obvious. But, but it's also just a little bit incredible. Think about Abimelech. Abraham is a prophet? I'm supposed to go to Abraham the liar and ask for prayer? I'm supposed to trust old lying Abraham to intercede for me and my whole kingdom? That's, that's where I'm supposed to go? But Abimelech does the incredible but wise thing. He rises early in the morning, he goes to Abraham and asks, what have you done to us? You may remember, this is the same accusation God speaks to Adam at the fall, isn't it? What is this that you have done, God said to Adam? And like Adam, Abraham, well, he blame shifts. You and I know what that is. He blame shifts. Remember how Adam responded to God? Well, the woman you gave to be with me, it's... It's kind of God's fault. 
Adam says. And in verse 13, Abraham responds, well, it all started when God caused me to wander from my house. And we had to devise this lying plan. He's, he's kind of saying, well, God, it's, it's kind of God's fault here. And that's just Abraham's recurring unbelief. That's the recurring sin he falls back on whenever he gets fearful about sojourning in a new place. You experience this in your own recurring sin, in your own fallback sinful habit. Same thing. And yet, Abraham is God's chosen prophet. He's God's agent. In verse 14, Abimelech blesses Abraham with sheep and oxen and male and female servants along with Sarah, his wife. Here's your wife back. There's a special gift of a thousand pieces of silver as a testimony to Sarah's innocence that Abimelech did not touch her. Abraham prays, and just as God promised in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God blesses those who bless Abraham, right? Abimelech has blessed Abraham with these gifts, with the return of his wife and the silver. Listen again to verses 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And it's not till the end of the story that we learn what God did to protect his people and his promise. Because Abimelech took Sarah, who is Abraham's wife, God afflicted Abimelech's wife and concubines, unable to conceive. Only through Abraham's prayer does God heal them so that they bore children. Through Abraham's prayer, God healed Abimelech also. So it seems likely that God had afflicted Abimelech with some type of sexual inability also, which explains why Abimelech did not approach Sarah. <clears throat> there is no length to which God will not go to protect his promises and his people. No length. And chapter 20 ends with, I think, two important lessons for us. First, that God chooses to work through human agency. We need to remember this. God chooses to work through human agency. God chose to heal only through Abraham's prayer. It's a critical lesson for us to learn. That our sovereign God, who will accomplish his purposes, chooses to do so through human agency, like the prayers of his people. Our prayers matter. Our prayers are even effectual. Because God has purposed not only his ends, but his means for achieving his ends through his people, his people's prayers. Abimelech needs salvation from God's judgment, or else he's a dead man. If Abraham doesn't pray, Abimelech doesn't live. God has chosen a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to save. It is his divine purpose to do so. He tells us, then, to ask and seek and knock through prayer, because he desires to answer, give, and open doors to his salvation. That applies to our prayers for, 
for God's purposes of salvation and also to all of his other promises to us in Christ. Because God works through human agency. Second, why does Moses wait? Remember, Moses is our author. Why does Moses wait till the end of the chapter to reveal this barrenness and this opening of wombs? Because he's an effective author. He's a good writer. He's moving to the forefront of our minds God's miraculous ability to open the closed wombs of many women. Just as we move into chapter 21 where the Lord reverses Sarah's barrenness in the birth of Isaac. It's not too difficult for God. So let's pick up in those first seven verses of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? God did. God did. The Lord visited Abraham and told him that Sarah would bear a son. The Lord even told Sarah that she would bear a son. And she laughed at him. Now, she's laughing with joy at the birth of her son, whose name is Isaac, which means laugh. There's just a little irony there, right? There's great joy in Isaac's birth. Abraham and Sarah have been waiting on the Lord for 25 years to fulfill the promise of a son. And Moses' emphasis is on God keeping his promise, as it should be. That's the emphasis in this verse. Listen again to the wording. The Lord visited Sarah, as he said. The Lord did to Sarah, as he promised. Verse 2, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son, at the time which God spoke of it. God did as he had promised, and Abraham did as God commanded, circumcising Isaac on the eighth day. This is a moment of rejoicing with joy in laughter because God protects and keeps his promise of a son. Look at all the work that God did to get get Abraham and Sarah to this point in 25 years, to protect that promise, to protect this son. And Isaac's a miracle baby. Isaac's a miracle baby. God had to open Sarah's womb for her and Abraham to conceive and give birth to Isaac, the promised seed. God had promised this miracle over and over and over since Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Isaac is born by faith. That may sound odd to you, but as inconsistent as Abraham and Sarah's faith was, Isaac was born by faith. Now, they, they tried to figure out ways to help God out, but they believed the promise by faith, and he's received with joy. And we can back this up because we're told so in Scripture. In Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, In hope, Abraham believed against hope 
that he would become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning uh, the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Isaac is born by faith. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. In Galatians chapter 4, and verse 27, where, where Paul speaks of Sarah as the mother of Jerusalem, he quotes Isaiah chapter 54, 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, that's Sarah, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And Paul goes on to say in verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of that promise. And so Isaac, Isaac's birth anticipates also the birth of the promised son, Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, Paul tells us. This is what Isaiah foretold about another miraculous birth in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall become Emmanuel. God who is with us, the Lord Jesus. And again in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He comes by faith. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul explains how we are sons of God in Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. By faith in Jesus the Son, we're born again and adopted as sons. As for Sarah, as she laughed for joy to receive Isaac, Mary sings for joy to receive Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Isaac points to Jesus. Moses has been tracing the seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3.15 through all of the generations, all the way here to Isaac. And Isaac points us to Christ, the true serpent crusher. But this chapter actually contains the tale of two sons. One who brings joy and one who brings sorrow. One who issues forth laughter and one who issues forth weeping. One who is new life and one who is near death. Let's pick up in verse 8, chapter 21, verse 8. And the child, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day of Isaac, was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and her son. 
For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Abraham celebrates uh, the weaning of Isaac from his mother. Uh, That would have been probably around three years, maybe a little longer, uh, that he would have been feeding from his mother. We can guess Isaac may have been three or four years old, which means Ishmael may have been about 17 or 18 years old at the time. And Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. Now, we all know the difference between laughing with someone and laughing at someone. Whatever prompted Ishmael's laughing, we can see that it's a negative thing. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, verse 29, But just as at that time he, Isaac, who was born according to the flesh, uh, excuse me, Ishmael, who was born according to the flesh, put him, Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit, persecuted him. That's what Paul tells us. So Ishmael is persecuting or, or mocking Isaac in some way. He's dishonoring Abraham's heir. Sarah tells Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. As long as Hagar is around she might try to claim Abraham's inheritance for her son. And as long as Ishmael's around, he may be a threat to Isaac's inheritance. This could become another Cain and Abel story, where one brother kills the other. Or or looking ahead, this could be a Jacob and Esau story, where one brother wants to kill the other brother. Sarah's request is displeasing to Abraham. He doesn't want to do it because he loves his son, Ishmael. God God tells Abraham to do it, to listen to his wife and cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and I wonder if that surprises you. See, with a narrow focus, Sarah may seem selfish, petty, and vindictive, and she might be. But from a broader focus, Sarah is protecting God's true heir to the promise. God says she's justified to send Hagar and Ishmael away. You know, if you wonder a little bit about that, Jim Hamilton is a biblical theologian. He's been very helpful here if you're looking for a resource. Uh, There are are people in the Old Testament 
who have faced circumstances, decisions, just like Ishmael and Hagar face, but with completely different responses to them. And I, I want us to consider just the two of them. First, remember Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Jonathan was the son of King Saul and heir to the kingship, heir to the throne. But when Jonathan learned that David was God's anointed king, Jonathan loved David and he gave David his robe, the symbol of his right to the throne. Ishmael and Hagar do no such thing. Rather than offer his loyalty to the heir, Ishmael mocks him. <clears throat> Here's a second instance. Remember Ruth? Remember Ruth, the daughter of Naomi? When Naomi sends Ruth away to return to her people, her land, and her gods, Ruth says, no. I will stay in your land, and your people will be my people, and your God shall be my God. Hagar says no such thing to Abraham. She leaves Abraham's land and people and God. She ignores God's promise for her son and goes, goes back to Egypt to find a wife for him. So Hagar and Ishmael <clears throat> do not respond at all like other people in the Bible who are facing similar decisions. They don't make any movement towards God. They don't make any movement towards Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, Hagar and Ishmael, they're all sorrowful. They're all filled with sorrow. The consequences of their sin are painful. They've made a mess and it's painful. It's true of us as well. It's true of us as well. The consequences of our sinful decisions can be painful. They can be consequential. Sometimes our sinful actions, they just can't be reversed. They're such that they just can't be done away with. That's the case here. Even so, God is merciful. God is merciful. He tells Abraham that he will keep his promise to Ishmael. So Abraham casts out Hagar and Ishmael with a little water and a little bread. And very soon, they're dying of thirst in the wilderness. That's what it looks like. That's the, that's the action in this scene. But the, divine, the, uh, the, the dialogue reveals what's really going on. We need to have in mind the last time God rescued Hagar back in verse chapter 16. We have to remember that just a little bit. Hagar now is in the wilderness again. Hagar doesn't want to look upon her son, whom she thinks is dying. She moves away. She distances herself. But the God who sees, remember that's what Hagar called God back in chapter 16, the God who sees. He sees Hagar in her plight. And the God who hears, remember that's, that's what the name Ishmael means, which is the name Ishmael God gave to Ishmael back in chapter 16. The God who hears, hears Ishmael's cry. He doesn't hear Hagar's cry. He hears Ishmael's cry. And God affirms his promise to preserve Ishmael and to make him a great nation. And then God opens up Hagar's eyes and she sees that there's a, there's a well of water there nearby all the time. And so they drink the water and they're rescued. And so we have once again a, another example of God's common grace to sinners. His providential mercy falls on the just and the unjust because God is merciful. 
And God's promise includes preservation. God preserves people to the point where they received the promise. God followed through with Ishmael, who'd become an expert with a bow and eventually would become a great nation. So in this tale of two sons, God, God's protecting one, Isaac, and he's protecting him from something, the other son, Ishmael. In many ways, as sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael look alike. But there's one great consequential distinction. Isaac is the child of the Spirit, while Ishmael is a child of the flesh. Not all who are descended of Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not of the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 9. You know, we are all born children of the flesh and not children of the Spirit. We're distinguished by our sin against God. We've mocked and ignored God, and so we're under His curse of judgment. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. That is through faith in Jesus Christ, the true and righteous Son of God, in order to be adopted as children of God. And you may be wondering, how does that work? How does that happen? Well, you must acknowledge that you're a dead man already because of your sins against God. You must believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place, taking God's just punishment on your sin on himself. And in Christ, God will forgive your sins and raise you up to new life just as he raised Jesus from the grave. Salvation comes only one way, through faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him now, and he will rescue you from sin and death, and he will protect you from the devil. Well, chapter 20 began with Abimelech. Chapter 21 ends with Abimelech. Beginning in chapter 21, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me, that I dug this well. Therefore the place 
was called Beersheba, because there are both there, both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now you may have read this before, and admittedly, close up, this is just, this is just an ancient dispute about water rights. That's what it is. Not very interesting. But I think there is something here about God's promises to Abraham that Moses, our author, wants us to see in the bigger picture. Abimelech sees that Abraham is a significant tribe. He's been through a pretty dramatic experience with Abraham. And that Abraham's significance comes from his God. So Abimelech wants a covenant. We might call it a fair trade agreement. A mutual non-aggression pact with Abraham. He brings a little muscle with him, Phicol, his army commander, you notice that, right? To improve his negotiating position. And Abimelech says, let you and me and our posterity deal kindly with one another. You deal honestly, because you've lied in the past, and I'll deal kindly, because that's what I do, or at least that's what Abimelech says he does. He wants to have this treaty with Abraham, which is just about the best treaty any nation could go for in that time, isn't it? Because God will bless those who bless Abraham. I mean, if, if you want to win, bless Abraham, and his God will bless you. It's a good deal for Abraham also. After all, he's just a sojourner in the land. He, he has to negotiate water rights and grazing rights and where he can camp and where he can't. It's really their call. And so Abraham says yes. But first, <laughs> there's a matter of this kindness of yours to deal with, Abimelech. See, Abraham has an issue with Abimelech's idea of kindness. The servants of Abimelech, who do they serve? Abimelech. Servants of Abimelech have seized control of a well that Abraham has dug and won't let him access the water. Water's a big deal for a herdsman. Water's a big deal for a herdsman in an arid climate. So Abraham brings it straight up and reproves Abimelech. Here's what you've done. And, and Abimelech's response is telling. It's kind of like, uh, um, what well? Uh, what? I mean, and you can imagine Abraham's response. I don't know who seized your well. Your servants seized my well. Why didn't you tell me? I just did tell you. Well, I didn't hear about it until today. Yes, and it's today that you want me to agree to deal with you the way you deal with me. It's relevant now. See, Abimelech is not owning his actions before the deal is made, he's, he's already not treating Abraham lightly. He's trying to, trying to slip that last acquisition of Abraham's well underneath the treaty deadline. He's not behaving like a covenant partner should behave. He's not behaving like somebody who, who's going to keep a covenant. You know, in chapter 20, God kept Abimelech from sinning against him. Absent God's intervention, he certainly would have sinned against him. And so, he looked a little better in chapter 20, than he really was. And so here we see that Abimelech is deceitful, cunning, and intimidating. 
because he brings a little muscle along with him. Phicol, his army commander. And Abimelech is the king of Gerar in the land of the Philistines. Now, we've been told that there would be Philistines in one of the prior uh, listings of people. Well, here there are Philistines, and there's a land of the Philistines, and Abimelech is the king of Gerar among them. The Philistines will be an ongoing problem for God's people for a long time. So this is the beginning of enmity between the seed of the woman, Abraham, and the seed of the serpent, Abimelech. Even so, Abraham ratifies the covenant of honest dealing with Abimelech. What's happening here? What what does this little picture look like in terms of the bigger picture? Well, first, Moses is making it painfully obvious that Abraham still does not possess the land. Abimelech possesses this land. It's clear. Now, Abraham just received Isaac. God's promise of a son. And we saw how Abraham the prophet prayed for Abimelech, and in that way, he was a blessing to Abimelech. Remember that God promised that Abraham would be a blessing to nations? But Abraham is still a sojourner. He is not a landowner. That promise has not yet been fulfilled, and Moses is letting us know the score. Abraham does not have the land. But I think there is one of the other promises, again, being fulfilled here. It's subtle, but Abraham has made a covenant of fair and honest dealings with the king of Gerar. And I think there's a sense in which Abraham has caught on to God's program of blessing others. I think think Abraham's getting with the program. God blesses Abraham, even though he's not perfect. God has blessed his son Ishmael, whom he had Abraham cast out. In the same way, we see Abraham learning how to be a blessing to others and exercising that. Being a blessing to a nation who's not his nation. And so he agrees to bless Abimelech of Gerar among the Philistines with this covenant. So Abraham does not have the land, but he has a son, and he is being a blessing to the nations. We're seeing the promises of God start to take shape in those ways. And Abraham responds to God's sovereign protection by worshiping him. He called on the name of the Lord, meaning he prayed to God and... He proclaimed about God. He's fulfilling his role as king, prophet, and priest to his people. He's got got a big bunch of people all around him and all those herds with them. He's also being prophet, priest, and king to his own son Isaac in the true things of God. But what do we learn about God? That's where we started. What do we learn about God? How does God act towards those he's in covenant relationship with? He protects them. He protects them. God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so it is Christ who protects us from our enemies of sin and death and the devil. Jesus is the one who carries us through to become the people of God, who carries us through to be a blessing to others. 
as the people of God, while waiting all the while for the coming kingdom of God, the promised land that he's taking us to. Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. True saving faith always perseveres. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, I'll read verses 4 to 9 so you get the context. I give thanks, Paul writes, to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you till the end? Christ protects us. True saving faith is not a thing. It is a relationship with this Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in the times of calamity. How is it that the righteous person who sins rises again? Not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of God that is credited to us by faith in Christ. Inconsistent as we are in our sojourn of faith, by the grace of God, He protects us, and He protects His promises to us through Jesus Christ, who is his promised son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for being a faithful, honest, forthright, and true-dealing God of the covenant to us. You have called us, you have saved us, you have adopted us, and you will protect us and deliver us safely home on the day of Christ. Oh, how we long for that day and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.